All right, well, welcome into Student Ministry Sunday. Uh, things are bound to look different when it's the student pastor who's on stage. So we do like to change things up. I always feel like I work really hard at a message, you know, to get people, you know, thinking and reflecting and all this stuff. And I don't want you thinking about lunch, like, as soon as I say amen at the end of it. So we always do worship at the end <coughs> of the, uh, our time together uh, when we meet as students. And so we figured we'll change it up and do the same thing for you. So we'll get a chance to, to worship at the end, but we'll kick it off uh, with the message. So we'll jump right in. Uh, back in 2006... A popular singer-songwriter tried joining the chorus of a long list of musicians who have set out over the years to capture and express the angst of their generation towards the unrest that they were witnessing in the world around them, and on top of that, the frustration that they felt towards world leaders that they didn't feel like were doing enough about it. So channeling his inner Buffalo Springfield, or John Lennon, John Mayer penned the lyrics to his Grammy-winning song, Waiting on the world to change. Me and all my friends, he says, we're all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing and there's no way we ever could. Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. Verse 2. If we had the power to bring our neighbors home from war, they would have never missed a Christmas. No more ribbons on their door. But when you trust your television, what you get is what you got. Because when they own the information, oh, they can bend it all they want. That's why we're waiting, right? Waiting on the world to change. He says it's hard to beat the system when we're standing at a distance. So we keep on waiting. Waiting, waiting on the world to change. Well, the song kind of rose in the charts. It ended up being one of his most popular singles to date. The content, though, however, the song kind of got mixed reviews. Some critiqued Mayer for his passive, helpless, kind of throw-up-your-hands approach to the world's problems. The lyrics not only express how troubled Mayer is with the problems of the world, but then the helplessness he feels to really do anything about it. He was interviewed shortly after the song was released, and here's what he says about the song. It's saying, well, I'll just watch American Idol. This is back in 2006, okay? Well, I'll just watch American Idol, because I know that if I were engaged in changing anything for the better, or the better as I see it, It would go unnoticed or be completely ineffective. A lot of people have that feeling, Mayer says. Now, self-admittedly, I do do enjoy a good bit of John Mayer's music, but, but I don't typically share his philosophies and ideologies on how the world does or doesn't work and how to go about changing it. But if I'm honest, it was the title of this song. And the helplessness and the hopelessness that it tries so hard to convey that I find, found myself uniquely resonating with over the last couple of weeks. Have you turned on the TV recently? Have you scrolled Twitter? Have you opened up Apple News or wherever you get your daily headlines? It feels like the world's on fire, doesn't it? There's a historic drought covering much of the western half of our country, leaving millions and millions without, with water restrictions or shortages. And on top of that, over 100 large wildfires that have to date burned and charred over 2.5 million acres of forests and communities and neighborhoods in its path. COVID variants, hospitalizations, and death tolls seem to be back on the rise, and mask mandates are back in place, all of which seem to bring out the worst in our country, no matter which side of the debate you're on driving the divisions in our country over, over race and religion and politics and healthcare even deeper. On a global scale, Haiti got hit by yet another massive earthquake. 
damaging or destroying nearly 137,000 buildings, claiming the lives of over 220 people, and negatively impacting an estimated half a million children in Haiti. On top of all that, one, a little, one that we keep hearing more and more about, after 21 years of U.S. occupation in the Middle East, 21 years of literal blood, sweat, and tears spilled in hopes of stabilizing the country of Afghanistan, 21 years of perceived progress seemingly evaporated overnight. I found myself reading article after article documenting gut-wrenching stories of women who, who for the last two decades have enjoyed the freedom to pursue education and careers and romance and, and social lives, but who were in an instant forced back into hiding, leaving those dreams and those degrees behind with them, of families literally running to the mountains, hiding in caves or jammed at the airport, praying that they might get their families to safety. Now, I don't want to wear them either. But it certainly puts the inconvenience of a mask mandate into perspective for us, doesn't it? See, headlines like that leave us feeling helpless, stuck, wondering, and waiting if the world might ever change. There's actually been another story for me that's hit a little bit closer to home, one that I found uniquely disorienting. <clears throat> like many others, I've been kind of binge listening to the popular podcast. John Vanderbilt referenced it last week. This documentary called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It was released by Christianity Today. It's an intriguing but, but honestly haunting documentary about a church started and led by a now infamous pastor named Mark Driscoll. A church that began as a handful of people but grew to over 15,000 people on a weekly basis. It was a church that at one point was setting the tone, setting the pace for churches and leaders across the nation, across the world. At one point, it was characterized as a beautiful movement of God. At one point, it seemed to be taking so much ground for God's kingdom. Only to find out later that this movement may have caused just as much damage in the lives of its congregants and staff workers as it did good in the world. And I found this story particularly troubling, uniquely disorienting for two reasons. First, because as I listened to the stories and sound bites of, of how it all began and how it all got started, it was a church and a leader that started out with all of the exact same aspirations and, and intentions and all the same kingdom dreams that, that I and most Christ followers have. Plans to follow Jesus. Plans to proclaim the gospel and reach lost sheep and make disciples. Plans to change the world and bring about God's kingdom plans to be an agent of, of healing and redemption, reconciliation to hurting and broken world. In fact, it's all the things that here at GBC we work so hard to be known for. And yet at some point along the way, despite all the planning, something went sideways. And those inside the church or watching and listening from the outside are left to wonder when and where did it go so wrong? And more importantly, how do we not suffer that same fate? Secondly, it was uniquely discouraging for me, not only because I'm a pastor, and this is my life's work, but because if there was one thing in the world that I had believed was supposed to be equipped and ready to address all of the other problems and pain of the world that we just discussed, 
one group, one movement that I believed would be eager to step into the mess of, of droughts and wildfires, of earthquakes and racial tension and political division and refugee crises to offer hope and healing and a better way forward. It was supposed to be the church, right? And yet for those who consider themselves part of the church, let's be honest, we have struggled to get even our own house in order, haven't we? At this moment in human history, we often seem just as divided, just as angry, just as hurtful and hateful as the world around us. And those who have been hurt by the church are now left wondering how they can ever believe in the church or believe in a spiritual leader again. And honestly, after all that's been made public over the last handful of years, decade, years about the church and many of its most recognized, most celebrated leaders. I mean, who can blame them for their skepticism? See, so after two weeks of news headlines like that, you know what I found myself feeling? Helpless. Waiting on the world to change. Because not only do I feel troubled by what's happening, but like mayor, I feel helpless to do anything about it. And a level deeper, as a Christ follower who believes in a God who's actually about changing things for the better. I'm left scratching my head wondering, what is God actually up to right now? See, what's funny is for the first part, first entire year of COVID, all, all anyone honestly talked about is how quickly we could go back to normal. But these days, forget about normal. People don't want to go back. People don't want how it used to be. People want change. But like Mayer says, it's hard to beat the system when you're standing at a distance. And so, so we just keep on waiting and waiting for the world to change. Well, this summer we have been making our way through the uh, book of Colossians. Colossians, Colossians, Ephesians. I went to seminary, I promise. This summer we've been making our way through Paul's letter, book of Colossians, to the church in Colossae. Uh, <clears throat> and we are now nearing the end of the letter. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 this morning. But before we get there, I honestly just owe a huge thank you to my boss, John Vanderveld. Uh, John really teed me up, I'll be honest, for this passage. Like, you know that feel-good scene at the end of every movie, right? The problem's been fixed, the, the mystery's been solved, the tension resolved, and it's that last scene where everyone's around hugging each other, like, we did it, we made it, let's go home and celebrate. Okay, that's right before the credits roll. Like, that's kind of what this passage is like. So I just want to say thank you to John for letting me do this week's sermon and not last week's sermon, if you were here for it. But in all seriousness, there really is this break in the tone of, of the letter here. It seems as though Paul is moving from these very specific instructions for certain groups of people to then broad instructions for the church at large. <clears throat> the church in Colossae is, is a young, new young church, poisoned ready to change the world in Jesus' name. But under the threat of persecution or hardship, they're probably feeling a bit helpless to make a difference and scared for their lives. And honestly, if there was anyone who, who would resonate with that feeling, it probably would have been Paul, the author of the letter. I mean, talk about waiting on the world to change. Paul was literally locked up in a jail cell, cut off from the outside world. But he seems to remain convinced of the power of what he's been calling the mystery of Christ. He'll reference it in our passage this morning. The mystery of Christ to change the world forever. The mystery or the revealed plan of God that he spent the first half of the letter writing so passionately about that we spent the summer talking about. 
So before we jump in, I just want to give a quick refresher. Paul's going to give them their final instructions, right, for, for carrying out and spreading this mystery of Christ. But before he tells them how to do it, I want to remind us again of what it is they're trying to accomplish so that we don't miss the weight of what he's saying. So throughout the entire letter, Paul has explained this mystery, this gospel, this good news in many different ways. I feel like he does it most clearly and best in the middle of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 19, listen. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness, the fullness of God, the divine, dwell in him, that is Jesus Christ. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, bring back to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... Now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. A lot of big words, a lot of big theology words. I'm going to distill it down really simply. God is about reconciliation. God is on a mission of reconciliation, restoring all things and creation back to himself. And it's through his great sacrificial love for creation that he's taking broken things and making them whole. He's taking enemies and making them friends. He's taking those who are alienated and he's calling them his sons and daughters. God is taking outsiders and he's making them insiders. And not only does he do it for us, he then invites us to follow in Jesus' footsteps to be reconcilers in this world the little hands and feet of Jesus, to, to reconcile and restore all of creation back to its creator through our demonstrations of sacrificial love. That's the mystery of Christ. And so for the Colossians, a group waiting for the world to change, Paul gives one last list of encouragements, final exhortations to this group of Christians to kind of chart their way forward into the unknown. And it's my hope that we too, this morning, charged with that same mission, but feeling also a bit helpless to do anything, might also find a way forward as well. So Paul says, you want to change the world? Here's what it'll take. It begins, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, I'll be honest, like, Paul's words here don't really instill a lot of inspiration at first glance. Like, what sermon doesn't end with the preacher ending by the application point? You know, guys, you know, pray more and read your Bibles. You know, I got it, Paul. Thank you. I've heard it a million times. Pray more. Read your Bible. I get it. I'm working on it, man. What else you got for me, though? But Paul writes this. He writes it from a jail cell. And if you want to change the world but are locked up in a jail cell, well, there, there aren't a ton of options, are there? You can't really take matters into your own hands. There's no power to leverage. There's no resources to tap into. Like, sure, you can talk to the jailer. You can sing worship to the inmates. And, and I'm, honestly, he probably drove his inmates crazy because he did all of those things. But this message, it was too good to be kept locked in a jail cell. And so with no other option, Paul falls back to the only thing he can do, regardless of what the circumstances of his life are. And he gets on his knees and he prays which I actually think speaks to its effectiveness. Because if there was anyone who could confirm whether prayer actually works or not, it's someone with literally no other options. No other reasons, no other excuses, no other rationale for why something might change outside the walls of the jail cell. 
if something changes outside your jail cell and the only participation you had was asking God to do it, it's safe to say it's working. And if it didn't work, my guess is Paul would have been given up long before that and wouldn't be telling this church to keep doing it. But being forced to his knees and having no option but to rely on God to show up in ways he could not, Paul watches God do more than he could ever ask or imagine. And I wonder, I wonder for us, I wonder if part of the reason we struggle so much with prayer, perhaps part of the reason we fail to see God at work, is because we always feel like we have other options. I mean, why pray for God to fix it when we can just fix it ourselves? Why pray for healing? We can just send them to the doctor. Why pray for justice when we can just go protest on the street? See, we're deceived into thinking we can fix these things on our own, that that through our own intellect and hard work and money and influence, we can solve these problems. And we may say that prayer is effective inside the walls of the church, but our lives demonstrate how little we really believe that, don't they? Myself included. Now, this is by no means an either-or God invites us to pray and ask for his help and then literally says, be the hands and feet on the ground. But if we're honest, when it comes to prayer, which is an expression of surrender and trust, prayer or trying to take matters into our own hands and control the outcomes, in our culture, one seems to get always prioritized over the other, doesn't it? And Paul tells us, don't fall into that trap. No matter what resources, influence, power you have at your disposal, change, reconciliation, restoring of all things. It does not happen without God. So keep inviting him back in. Every chance you get, invite God back in. So if you want to be part of God's reconciliation of all things, you're going to have to get on your hands and knees and start praying. He continues in verse 3 and 4. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, like we talked about, for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, I want to give a little bit of a heads up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push here a little bit, because I think that's what Paul is doing, and honestly, it might get a little bit uncomfortable. But frankly, after John's sermon last week, I feel like I have just full support and, and leaning full into the awkward that this passage holds for us. Notice what Paul says in the middle here. That it's the proclamation of the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. In other words, Paul's commitment to God's mission of reconciliation is what landed him in prison. It's the cause of his incarceration. It's the source of his suffering. Okay, and you know what he asks them to pray for? More of it. To put it in clearer language, hey, hey, friends, you know that thing that's, man, it's made my life so much harder, the thing that's led to my unjust suffering, the thing that's made my life less convenient, less comfortable, less safe, more restricted? Could you guys do me a favor? Could you ask God, could you ask God to do more of that for me? That'd be fantastic. Either Paul's insane or he's onto something. Perhaps a little of both. See, here's what this means. If God were to say yes to every one of Paul's prayers, 
it would make Paul's life much harder, less comfortable, less convenient, less safe, which is really, really, really hard for us because we live in one of the most comfortable places on planet Earth. Back during quarantine, when no one had anything else good to do, everyone decided to go on walks. It was kind of the only way to stay sane. So everyone would go out and walks. I live over in what I like to call Glen Ellen Bible Estates, where it seems like literally half our church uh, decided to live and set up residence. It's just north of Wheaton College. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't want to see or talk to anyone, so I decided to go late at night. I just wanted to think and pray and kind of be alone. So I kind of walk by myself, and I end up uh, over at this big field called Lawson Field. It's a big, open, grassy field a block north of Wheaton College's campus. And, and it's surrounded right smack dab in the middle of this neighborhood. It's surrounded by great families and beautiful houses and, and freshly manicured lawns. And I found myself, it was a beautiful summer night. I found myself just, just soaking it in, taking it all in, until all at once it hit me. I might currently be standing in probably the one, of the, one of the most safe, comfortable, and convenient places literally in the entire universe. Like, not only do we have Wheaton College, I mean, Wheaton Police driving around and protecting us, we also have college's public safety, which freaks me out every single time because I think I'm about to get pulled over. Safety, comfort, convenience. If there's anything our community will have the tendency to idolize, I mean, it might just be those three things. It's what we work and strive for. It's what we save up for. It's what we dream of for our kids. And if we're honest, how easy is it for those things to become priority number one for us? And dare not a leader or government official or boss or principal or pastor infringe on any one of those things or the gloves are coming off. Do you feel like they're your enemies? Do you feel like they're opposing you? Do you feel like those people are making your life harder? Great. Jesus actually already gave us the response to those people. He asks you to lay down your life for them. He asks you to serve them. He asks you to respect them. He asks you to win them back with love no matter how hard it makes your life because that's what Jesus did for those who opposed him, for you, for me. Guys, if God said yes to every one of Paul's prayers, it would have made Paul's life much harder, less convenient, less comfortable, less safe, because it would have made the lives of others better. And so as uncomfortable as it might be for me to ask the question, would your prayers do the same to your life? If God answered yes to every one of your prayers, would it make your life perhaps less convenient, less comfortable, less safe? And I get it. I live here too. I live in suburbia. I want a comfy house and nice vacations and fun toys. I want my kids to go to good schools and feel safe when they walk around. And I really wish they didn't have to wear a mask either. But there's something I want more than all of that. Something that's so easy for me to forget when I'm surrounded by the comfort and convenience that I'm surrounded by. I want the kingdom of God to come to earth. I want the mystery of Christ to be revealed to a world that is desperate for it. 
I want all of creation to be reconciled back to its creator. I want to be part of making enemies into my friends. I want to be part of welcoming those who are alienated into the family of God. I want to be about making outsiders feel like insiders. And if it could happen for Paul in the jail cell, then it can certainly happen for us behind a mask, as annoying as they are. And while our lack of prayer reflects where we actually think change comes from, do our lives, our pursuits, our spending habits, do they reflect where, our treasure, where we think our treasure actually comes from? See, there's a reason why Jesus said, he wasn't joking around, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you live where you live, that's us. So take note. It's because every human is equally broken and in need of a savior, in need of help, but it's only those who with ample resources that are tricked into believing that they aren't. Tricked into believing and thinking they're doing pretty good for themselves. Tricked into thinking they're prioritizing kingdom treasures, when in reality they're just prioritizing their own treasures and putting God's stamp of approval on it. So if you want to be part of God's reconciliation of all things, then you're going to have to be willing to suffer. To embrace discomfort, inconvenience, and risk. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Paul finishes this section with one more instruction, and it's to live irresistibly. Be wise, he says, in the way you act towards outsiders. <clears throat> outsiders are unbelievers, another translation puts it. Be wise. Okay, okay like what? Like, like stay away from them so you don't, so don't pollute your life, hang with insiders, just hang with Christians. Is that, is that what he means? Now, remember, this, this gospel, this mystery of Christ is about making outsiders into insiders, so Paul doesn't tell them to avoid them. He tells them to make the most of every opportunity you have with them. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He says, don't miss a chance to reconcile them back to their father. All right, how? How do, you, how do we do that? Verse 6. Let your conversations. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Better yet, let your tweets... Let your retweets, let your Facebook posts, let your Instagram posts, let your Snapchats, let every single way you express what's in your heart and in your mind, let it always, there's no exception, always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. I don't know about you, but, but I can honestly eat salt all day long. I mean, like, skip the cookies, give me more ruffles. I'm all about the salt game. Salt, what does it do? It's a flavor enhancer. Okay, so Paul is saying, let your conversations, let your words, let your actions, let your life be life enhancers, relationship enhancers, love enhancers for everyone you meet, especially those who are yet to be reconciled back to the Father. Another translation uses the word attractive to kind of capture this salt analogy. Attractive, appealing, delicious, something people actually want, something people are glad to have, are eager to have more of, something that's irresistible. So my question, are people drawn to you? 
are people drawn to me? Are they glad to have us around? Are they eager to have you around more often? Do you make it easy for them to be their very best selves? That's what Paul is talking about. I love how Paul ends it. He says, so that you might so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's put it back all together. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Okay, an answer assumes that there's a question being asked. That someone is drawn in and and wants or needs an answer. That someone needs to know why we're living the way we're living, that people are so drawn to our lives and our love that they come asking us questions. You know who this happened to all the time? Jesus. Like after a little while, read the Gospels. He hardly has to seek anyone out. They literally come knocking down his door, even his enemies. He was just so gosh darn irresistible. They had to know why. They had to know what was up. Now, people are certainly asking questions about Christians these days, aren't they? They are certainly scratching their heads and confused and wondering why we're acting the way we're acting and living the way we're living and speaking the way we're speaking and tweeting and posting the way we're tweeting and posting. I'm just not so sure it's for the best reasons. I'm not so sure it's because they so badly want in. I'm not sure it's so badly they want to be a part of that. I'm not so sure it's because they're so drawn to us or because we've made their lives so much better they can't help but want to be a part of it. What if people ask these questions? Why are they so gracious to the people that drive everyone else nuts? Why are they so respectful? Why are they so content and at peace? Why are they so merciful to people that have hurt them? Why are they so understanding of people's situations? Why are they so welcoming? That's not the way the world works. You can't be welcoming. You can't be understanding, merciful, respect. You get walked all over. I don't understand. Tell me more. I want you to think for a sec. Close your eyes. What type of people do you let influence and speak into your life? Is it angry people? Judgmental people? Offended, easily offended people? self-righteous people, people who care about their needs ahead of yours? No, never. The people you let influence you are the people that you like and the people that you trust. So look up here. What if, what if as Christians, we just worked our butts off to be people that others, outsiders, liked and trusted that they loved having us around, that we added more joy and intimacy and depth and meaning and purpose to whatever we were doing. And we were such high integrity and character that we cared for them so deeply they could literally trust anything to us. What if we worked really hard to be people that others liked and trusted? I wonder if they might come knocking down our doors of the church and our homes and our offices, wondering why, wondering why. So to sum up Paul's points, if you want to be about God's work of reconciliation, well, then you're going you're gonna to have to be okay living like Jesus. But you already knew that, didn't you? 
you're going to need to pray. Because if, if God in the flesh saw it fit and necessary to ask his heavenly father for help, I'm not sure we can find a good excuse not to also. You're going to need to embrace suffering. You're going to need to be okay with it because, because a life of loving your enemies and elevating the needs of others ahead of your own, it'll be a life characterized by dying to yourself. It will feel like dying. If you feel like you're dying, you might just be going in the right direction. In fact, Jesus promised it. Are we ready to die? For the sake of another, for the sake of our enemies. And finally, you're going to need to love unconditionally. You're going to need to live graciously because a life full of grace, forgiveness, wholeness, a love, it's a life that all humans will find attractive, appealing, and want in on. As we wrap up, I want to share about one more podcast that I listened to this last week. And after a slew of articles, podcasts, and news stories that left me feeling hopeless and helpless, honestly, this one did just the opposite. One of my student team members, Mari, had, had mentioned to me about this podcast a couple weeks back, but I was honestly too busy depressing myself with the Mars Hill podcast to have any time for it. Well, I finally got around to listening to it this past week. It's, it's hosted by Jenny Allen, a Christian leader and speaker who created the IF Gathering and at conferences for women all over the world. And truthfully, after listening to the podcast, I, I thought about getting up this morning and literally just hitting play because it's just that good. I would recommend you go listen to it yourself. Jenny Allen had the chance to interview two men who are currently serving as missionaries in the Middle East, in parts of Afghanistan. In fact, one of the men there is living under such threat, they, they blurred out his face, they changed his voice, and they changed his name to hide his identity. He goes by Pastor X. But just like Paul in that jail cell, the hope of the gospel, it was too good not to risk his life for. So following in Paul's footsteps, who was following in Jesus' footsteps, Pastor X embraced that risk to share some stories with people all over the world that wouldn't hear otherwise. He describes the current circumstances for Christians in Afghanistan, much of which I can't share because of, of the wide age range that we have in the room. But there's literally a hit list the Taliban has created that they are hunting down Christians. Some Christians have been there for generations that they're kind of flying under the radar and continuing to be the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground in Afghanistan. And perhaps this morning you're feeling like maybe some of what I, I'm saying this morning sounds crazy, too radical, too intense, not, not even based in reality. I just want you to listen to a few of these quotes from Pastor X. Okay, here are some snippets from the podcast from someone who, for someone who, who, who lived 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul, but actually discovered the very same realities to be true in his world today. So do you ever wonder if prayer is really effective? Here's what he says. Everything happens through prayer. If you're not praying, then the kingdom of God will not go forward. What about our great sermons and the worship sets? What about our acts of... What about... What about Everything happens through prayer. Don't believe that suffering needs to be embraced for the gospel to go forth. He says persecution grows the church. It keeps you clinging. It keeps you focused. It's actually a perfect storm for the gospel because we come to Jesus when we're broken. Historically speaking, the church has always flourished under persecution 
which makes me wonder, does the church die under convenience and comfort? Don't feel like enemy love is realistic or worthwhile. He tells the story. We have a story of someone in the medical field who was approached by the Taliban for help. They were requesting water and food, and this person's a believer. And because of their occupation, they were <clears throat> still able to have access and maintain, maintain access to these resources. So literally, he says, literally you have believers who are still functioning and doing their job and actually serving the Taliban water and food and keeping them close enough. Hear this. So, when the, so that when the opportunity presents itself, sounds like Paul. They're serving the Taliban water and food and keeping them close enough so that when the opportunity presents itself to be able to share the gospel, the mystery of Christ, that they can be reconciled back to the creator, that they'll get the chance to do that. This is my favorite quote in the whole thing. It honestly pretty much sums up the sermon. No amount of money can change a nation. I mean, you're talking about trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the economy. You're talking about occupation, training, resources, shipping containers filled with cash have been sent to Afghanistan. And the reality is the only way to change a nation is through discipleship. Then he goes on. He says it's not conquering. It's not through conquering. It's not through violence. It's not through intimidation. But it's through love. That's the whole thing right there, isn't it? That. That's how God won you back. That's how God reconciled you back to himself. Not through conquering. Not through violence. Not through intimidation. But an insane, radical, undeserved, self-sacrificial love. So are you sitting at home, at your desk, in your car, waiting for the world to change, feeling helpless and hopeless, like what difference can I make? I've got good news for you this morning. A no-name rabbi from a no-name town came preaching a message of forgiveness and reconciliation and living a life that was characterized by belonging and inclusion and healing. He welcomed the outsider and he healed the sick and he touched the untouchables. And when his enemies threw their worst at him and then crucified him to a tree and mocked him while he was up there, if you're God, pull yourself off. He prays to his heavenly father for their forgiveness. We don't have any outs left, guys. This is the way God changes the world. He changes hearts. He changes communities. He changes nations. And it's that Messiah, that Jesus, that Savior, that love, that God, that's been changing the world ever since. You don't need to wait on the world to change. God's already doing it, and he's invited you to participate in it with him. He wants to use people like you and me, who've been reconciled back to the Father, who in great joy sell everything they have, live a life of inconvenience and suffering, laying down their lives for the sake of of those who don't deserve it, to bring all things back to God. The only question left, will you join him? Pray with me.
Heavenly Father, I'm uh, so grateful for the role I get to play in um, doing my very best to explain the mystery of Christ. That there is a God who worked on our behalf long before we realized we needed it. Loved and provided and laid down his life for those that opposed him. God, how can we do anything but that in response? Father, thanks for this gospel that not only convinced Paul in a jail cell that it could change the world, that it convinces a Pastor X in Afghanistan that it can change the world and change a nation, that it can convince us living in the comfort and convenience and safety of the suburbs of Chicago that the only thing that changes the world is that kind of love. So let us not get distracted. Let us not lose focus. Let us not miss this. Embracing other fading pleasures, trading them in, and missing out on the mission of God. God, we need hope. We need help. We want to start, as Paul asked us to, we want to start by asking you for it, praying for it. So, Spirit, would you convict us? Would you move us? Would you compel us to live like Jesus? To accept his grace unconditional love every time we fail to do so and with great joy go back about loving about the mission of loving our enemies and laying our lives down for them father let us be salt let us be light let us be so attractive let us present the mystery of christ and show it to be just as irresistible as it truly is when it's understood so god thanks that you have invited us into this not only saved and reconciled us back to you, but then charged us to, to enjoy and go out and do the same and experience the joy and pleasure of our Father in heaven. God, you are so good to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.